Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to Marketing Saves the World, marketingsavestheworld.com or firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. For example, you could get a sample episode of Competitive Strategy with Kevin Coyne. Kevin Coyne is an ex-McKinsey partner, former worldwide head of strategy, and he had served something like over 25 CEOs on a personal level, on a one-to-one basis over his career. Kevin also has a program called How to Become a McKinsey Partner. It's the first time ever a McKinsey partner has gone on record talking about what is actually required to become a partner and you'll find it's very different from what you think is required how to develop deep insights which i have put together one of our most popular programs the electric car startup you will get sample episodes of all of those programs and more if you sign up to this list so that said i hope you enjoy today's episode hi everyone and welcome to today's episode of the case interviews and management consulting podcast and again i'm going to be answering a reader question and this one comes in from an indian lady who is i believe based on an email in a final year of a law degree at one of the most respected law schools in the united states I guess she also has an arts degree as an undergraduate. She doesn't say that exactly, but she does allude to it. And her question basically is, is an arts and or law background worthless? That's the exact sentence she provided for me to answer. Not a lot of details here, but I don't need a lot of details to answer this question. And I felt that it's worth answering this question because it's widely misunderstood how valuable a law and arts degree is. And I'm going to start off by saying that it is, in many ways, a law degree is better for management consulting than an MBA. And I'm going to make my case here. And as always, I always make a case rather than just saying it so that you can deduce whether the logic is applicable and sound. And you will see that it is sound, at least so logical that it's going to be hard for you to refute the evidence I put forward. And I want you to think about this as you are studying law and the arts and so on. I'm going to rephrase a question to say, is an arts degree or law degree worthless to management consulting? Because just ask, is an arts degree or law degree worthless? That means to any situation, any career. And I don't want to talk about careers outside of consulting because obviously this is a podcast about consulting and case interviews. As a starting point, it is unusual for me to get questions from Indian national studying law in the united states i haven't seen that many it's more common that i've seen that when indian graduates move from india to study law they usually go to the uk and cambridge and oxford so this is unusual again based on the sample population we have but it's not that unusual when you consider how many indians that are in the law profession in the united states i have not been able to ask any follow-up questions to this lady but i don't think i need them to proceed with this now before we begin very important point to make here I am considering this question relative to whether an arts background or a legal background, a law degree, is relevant to management consulting. If we were talking about whether an arts background or legal background was relevant to the arts field or the legal profession, this would be a no-brainer and the answer would be obviously yes. Well, for arts, maybe not because you don't really need a degree to excel at the arts, right? But my point is that people listening to this podcast are in the business world and all the discussions you may hear about arts and a legal background is whether it's relevant Remember, the question is whether it's relevant to business. Arts and a law background are obviously relative to the fields where they are most common. For example, the arts profession could be asking you, is an MBA relevant to become a pop singer? 
how many MBAs become pop singers. So you have to know the lens you are applying here because it's not as if a legal background and arts degree are worthless. It's just the question is raised whether it is applicable or useful or an advantage in a management consulting background, which is usually dominated by business degrees. I'm going to start with arts because I think it's the quicker one I want to answer, right? Is an arts background relevant in management consulting? Well, let's just go broad here, right? Think of a typical day you have. A typical day you'll read a newspaper, you listen to music, you'll watch television, and you'll probably maybe eat out or something like that. That's most of the stuff you do beyond work. You also wear clothing, hopefully, shoes and so on, sit in a car, go somewhere. Each of those things are controlled and dominated by artists. The music you listen to is prepared by an artist. The food you eat is obviously prepared by a chef, which is a form of art. The clothing you wear is a form of art. The car you sit in is engineering and designed by artists. So broadly speaking, art is not a worthless field. It is an extremely valuable field. Whether it's valuable in management consulting, I think this one here is almost an obvious answer would be yes, because most consulting firms hire people once they have their MBAs. And for a lot of those people, they usually have some kind of a non-STEM cell background. We tend to assume that every management consultant has an engineering background, has a medical background, or a business background. But management consultants with a business background that's non-MBA is actually rare. Engineers are very common, and a general BA background is actually quite common. But consultants who specialize in business is extremely rare. Those who specialize in business as an undergraduate, very rare. Those who have an MBA, much more common. So I wouldn't know the numbers for every single country, but I'm going to say by and large, in the United States and Canada, undergraduate degrees in arts will be a fairly large percentage of the overall degrees recruited once someone gets an MBA. But generally, why does an arts background have such a bad rap? Well, think about becoming a doctor. It's a clear path. You go to medical school, you serve your internships or whatever that is, and then you become a doctor. To become a lawyer, there's a clear path. To become an engineer, there's a clear path. To become an artist, there's no clear path. How do you become a pop singer? There are millions of people trying to become a pop singer. The average earnings of an engineer is going to vastly exceed the average earnings of an aspiring pop singer. And the reason for that is that it's a winner-take-all economy in the arts. What does that mean? If you worked at a consulting firm, and let's assume you were not a great consultant, It is possible, and I've seen this, for you to be very close to some partners, for you to find a way to get people to give you good reviews, even though you may not deserve it. So you can hide in the system. You can hide in the system because it's not a transparent performance review system. If you're an artist, if you are Taylor Swift, okay, maybe you can seduce some critic to write a nice review about you, but your success is dictated by whether people buy your records or not. It's dictated purely by a transparent transaction. If you are bad, no one's going to buy your records. If you're good, people are going to buy your records. People, haters are still going to hate, but it's going to happen, right? So the arts profession is a winner-take-all economy, which means that because everything is so transparent and everyone competes on the same platform like iTunes and so on, it is very, very obvious that people can compare transactions and work with the people they want to work with. The legal profession, consulting, engineering, they're not winner-take-all economies or winner-take-all platforms because it's a B2B transaction. You, as an engineer, you are hired by a company and you work for a company. And that company, usually one person in the company gets to dictate what you are worth. In most artistic professions, it's a B2C economy. You produce a record, you make food, which you sell to the market, and the market dictates your success. In a winner-take-all economy, what you'll find is that There are many players in the market, but the majority earn very little. 
But those who are very good move all the way to the top and capture the lion's share, the winner takes all of the market and earn a disproportionate amount. So in a way, manner of speaking, if you want to become an engineer and a lawyer and so on, you're kind of playing it safe because you know that you're guaranteed to have a good life, but it's a lot harder to have the best life. And even if you are very good, there are many things out of your control. As an artist, if you go down that path, it's not a clear path because it's a winner-take-all economy. The average income is going to be very low. But if you're the best, you're going to take the majority of it, right? Now, let's talk about the legal profession because the artistic profession is so big. There's so many different disciplines in there like history and so on and literature. It's hard to talk about everything in one podcast. I wanted to basically talk about the differences between the arts fields and so on so you can get a sense of it. But let's talk about the legal profession, right? And I'm going to make a very important case here why lawyers are maybe better at understanding business than even MBAs. And I'll make my case for you. Let's assume there's a particularly difficult problem in business. Um, let's take an example. Let's assume two companies are fighting it out to determine whether they should merge. That's a good example. One company wants to merge with another one to a hostile takeover. The other one doesn't want to merge and is, is putting together a case why they should remain independent. Both sides are going to hire bankers and consultants and both sides are going to have their teams of bankers and consultants make their case which is eventually going to be either agreed by both parties, whereby both parties agree that, you know what, this team of lawyers and bankers made a better case, so let's go with it. Or this other party's group of bankers and lawyers have made a better case, so let's go with it. But what happens when they disagree? When they disagree, you have to go before a judge, a lawyer, who has to look at both sides and make a ruling. Now, let's just step back for a second here. A judge is someone who is meant to provide an impartial ruling and is usually qualified enough to provide an additional layer of scrutiny or a better layer of scrutiny than the parties involved. Think of a competition that has judges. Clearly, the judges are usually more highly qualified than the participants. You wouldn't have a judge that's less qualified than the participant. That would not work as any competition in the world. Imagine The Voice, that major show on network television where people compete to see who's the best singer and so on, had judges that we had less stature than the participants, the competition would fall apart. So I think we can agree as a starting point, judges have greater stature, greater respect and greater capabilities in terms of understanding the issues versus the participants. If a business issue goes to trial, the same dynamic exists with the judge. The judge has greater stature, greater standing and a greater understanding of the dynamics. So when business issues are debated, there's not a situation whereby the two parties, like two merging companies or two companies fighting out, would say, hey, you know what? Let's get an impartial consulting partner from another firm to give us advice. Nobody says that, do they? Have you ever seen two companies duking it out and would say, you know what? We can't make a decision. We're totally at loggerheads here. Let's get a partner from McKinsey. McKinsey is not involved in both sides of the transaction. Let's get an impartial senior partner from McKinsey, bring them into kind of an arbitration, and they will rule for both sides. Have you ever seen that happening? I've never seen that happening. What I have seen is lawyers were trained in the law coming forward and giving their views, right? So judges evaluate tough issues that others cannot evaluate. Now, you're probably going to think to yourself, well, Michael, probably those lawyers are trained or probably those judges are trained in business. They probably have some business background and have worked in many cases in business. Let's take one example, right? This is one example. You could go through all of them and you're going to find a similar pattern. The AT&T Time Warner deal which was presided over by Judge Richard Leon. 
Now you can look him up. He's not a hidden guy, right? But he had to make some pretty complicated decisions on the economics of the merger and whether it would cause damage in the market, for lack of a better word, whether to reduce competition, raise prices, reduce innovation, and so on. Those are management consulting questions. I think we can all agree market structures, pricing, innovation, strategy, and so on are questions that consulting firms are hired to handle. But here was a guy, Judge Leon, who was meant to rule on this. And you can read his ruling. It's That's a great thing about having judges provide business rulings. It's all for the public domain. Right? If you want to look it up, I believe it is, and I could be wrong on this, but it's opinion 17-2511. And you can find it on the uscourts.gov website. Now, the number could be wrong. I think it's 17-2511 opinion, but just look it up. Judge Leon's rulings on the AT&T Time Warner merger, right? Now, what is Judge Leon's background? Well, this one I had to look up because I actually didn't know his background. So according to Wikipedia, that bastion of knowledgeable information is a graduate of the College of the Holy Cross, an AB, Suffolk University Law School, a JD, and I had to look up where Suffolk University Law School is. It's somewhere in Massachusetts. And he has a Harvard Law degree. Now, in terms of his career, this guy has not had any business background. He started off as an attorney for immigration and naturalization services in the United States Department of Justice. He was an assistant professor of law at St. John's University School of Law. He was a trial lawyer for the United States Department of Justice. Basically, everything here is, broadly speaking, non-business. If you go look at his federal judicial service when he was appointed to the federal judicial court by a sitting U.S. president, in that case, George W. Bush, he ruled on things like releasing Guantanamo Bay detainees, whether the FDA Food and Drug Administration could block the importation of electronic cigarettes. And he, he doesn't seem to like the Food and Drug Administration that much, I can gather. He ruled on the Palestinian Authority, whether handguns can be carried in public. Now, you can very clearly see that he's done very little work in business until he kind of breaks into the scene in 2011 when he rules on the NBC Universal acquisition of Comcast. Then in 2018, he rules against the Attorney General, the United States government, trying to block the merger of AT&T and Time Warner. And now he is involved in something on trafficking. So he has a judge, and you can read his opinion. It's public. It's not like consulting documents whereby McKinsey or BCG does something and you have no idea how they came to the conclusion and you have no idea what the quality of the work is. You can read his rulings. And I've read his rulings, and they are very, very logical. So when someone tells me that lawyers don't understand business. I don't understand that because I love reading legal opinions on business because they're extremely profound, extremely detailed, extremely logical. And forget about whether I love reading it. Clearly, our system of commerce, our system of capitalism depends on a group of lawyers who are not versed in business, who don't have MBAs, ruling on critical business decisions and everyone accepting that ruling. Well, of course, they can appeal this decision, but then it will go to the Supreme Court, which again, the last time I looked, none of them had MBAs, but they will rule on business issues. Somewhere around the world, MBAs, I think, or business people decided to create the storyline that lawyers don't understand business, but on a daily basis, on the most critical issues in business where both parties cannot agree, we all agree that the best person to give us the final decision are a bunch of judges who are essentially lawyers who don't understand business because they don't they have no training in business. And that's just the point. You don't have to have a background in business to understand business. Now, think about this for a second, right? If you look at the way law, uh, judges analyze things, because I read all these rulings all the time, they don't use frameworks the way we use frameworks. Frameworks is one way to, under, to analyze businesses, but it's become a de facto way of doing it because everyone just assumes McKinsey, BCG, and Bain are the 
only people who can think logically about business, and everyone ignores the fact that the most complicated questions in business, on which no one can agree on, is actually presided on by judges, but no one looks at the way judges make decisions. The way judges think is basically comes from their legal profession. And the way the legal profession works, and I'm obviously summarizing this a little bit, judges ask the question, if this were to be true, what would it take? So for example, if AT&T is saying that this merger with Time Warner is not going to raise prices, not going to cause a decline in innovation, is not going to lead to a decline in choice, the judge would ask, okay, if that is true, what would have to be true for that initial statement to be true? Or what would it take for that to happen? It's not exactly a framework. If you look at the way I teach in TCO, uh, when I teach brainstorming to Felix and Sanjeev in particular, I call it a cascading decision tree. I think that will be session six with Felix or Sanjeev. It's called a cascading decision tree. A cascading decision tree is basically a set of questions you would have to ask yourself for something to be true. So you can take the, the questions that Judge Leon would ask and say, hey, what would have to happen for this to be true? He'd have a set of maybe five points and he could word it as a question. For example, first point is that AT&T must not pull the Time Warner shows from competing providers. That's a fact. But he could say it as a question, which is, what is the probability that AT&T will pull Time Warner shows from competing companies? He'll list a set of questions, which effectively is a framework, and I call it the cascading decision tree, which is a cascading framework, and I teach that as well. But again, just as an aside, for the sake of transparency, that program is not for free. Premium subscribers can get access to it. And then we teach more advanced logic and problem solving in the power sector study, which is only available to insiders. So I just want to be clear that if you're searching for it and you're not an, either a premium subscriber or an insider, which is a loyalty member, you can't have access to it. But if you do, please have a look at that. So the point I'm trying to make is that lawyers, at least the good ones, analyze problems differently from the way consultants do it, but they arrive at the same conclusions. You can read Judge Leon's rulings on just about everything or any other. I'm using him as one example, but any other federal judge who rules on business issues, it's quite amazing what they are writing about and how they analyze issues. And I read it all the time. Now, I want to end up with two points here, and they're very important points. We all agree, even though we don't think about it, we all agree that we're going to follow the rulings of federal judges on business issues. Because if we didn't agree, we wouldn't go through the system and create an alternative system. We even agree that when we disagree with that federal judge, it will go to an appeals judge. Again, a bunch of judges, not MBAs. And if we disagree with the appeals judges, we'll take it to the Supreme Court, which again is a bunch of very elevated judges who definitely don't have an MBA, right? And have never served in MBA position. Ever, ever, no exposure to it. So whether or not we think about it, we've already accepted that on the most complicated and complex business issues, judges, AK lawyers are going to rule on it. And we're going to accept the analysis of the issues. So if judges and lawyers are so good at business, why do lawyers have a bad rap in management consulting? Here's my theory. And it is based on, on a trip I once took. So I was once traveling in a Middle Eastern country, which shall remain unnamed. And I was having this wonderful outdoor, I can't remember what I was eating, but it was something nice. So it's there in February, beautiful. And I was talking to one of these partners, probably I know him fairly well, so he's a bit open with me. And he was telling me how much he dislikes people from a certain Asian subcontinent country because they're, you know, they're always stealing stuff, they're dirty, whatever. Right? Basically all these racial comments. And I was thinking to myself, but that's obviously not true because I, you know, no nation is dirty. You may meet some people who are dirty from a nation, but there's not a judgment on a nation. And even if a nation is struggling and poor and, you know, by conventional standards, they don't have the ability to shower as much. It's really a function of their circumstances versus a judgment on the kind of people they are. But here's the insight here. The insight here is that maybe 
the way that Middle Eastern country has set up its immigration system is that it doesn't attract the best people from that subcontinent. Because if you go to any other country in the world, citizens of that subcontinent are highly sought after as doctors, lawyers, marriage partners in some cases as well. But basically, they're a very successful diaspora around the world. So the question is, clearly, they're a successful nation. Maybe not in their own country, which is going through some problems. And that is not, again, a judgment on them as people. I think, you know, we all have problems. We just have to help them and we'll get through it. But clearly, under the right circumstances, they can be successful. So why has this Middle Eastern country not been able to attract the successful citizens of the subcontinent? Which brings me back to consulting. Is it possible that there is something wrong with the way consulting firms are recruiting lawyers? Because unless you're telling me you disagree with the entire legal system, an entire way we make decisions in the Western world, which and the basis of capitalism in the Western world is the rule of law and property rights, which are ruled on by judges. Unless you disagree with the basis of capitalism, you have to agree that lawyers and judges do know enough to rule on the most complex issues in business and ergo must understand business. But if that is true, why do lawyers have this bad rap in consulting that they're not a good fit for consulting? It doesn't make any sense. To me anyway, it doesn't make any sense. Lawyers are actually trained to speak up. So my hypothesis is that consulting firms have not really put together a good system of recruiting lawyers. They basically don't have a mechanism to recruit lawyers. And the only lawyers that end up applying to consulting firms are maybe not the best lawyers because the best lawyers stay in the law profession. I mean, that's maybe a logical thing, right? If you're doing well in the legal profession, why would you leave the profession? You'd probably leave if you weren't doing so well. And again, this is just inferences. I could be wrong. So don't be offended when I say that not the best lawyers are going into consulting because it's not a generalization. Some very good lawyers are applying. But the bottom line is, it's hard to deny this, but lawyers, for some reason, people say are not a good fit for consulting. But by every conventional measure, they should be one of the best fits for consulting. So my feeling is that consulting firms are not actually targeting the right lawyers when they recruit them. They're just open to recruiting lawyers and they end up getting lawyers who have either become disheartened or disillusioned of the profession, maybe not even that good as lawyers who are looking for a different way out. I mean, when you spend something like $350,000, $400,000 to pay for your law degree, you certainly want to go someplace that's going to be able to allow you to do that. So maybe it's a challenge to law fir- to um, consulting firms to figure out who those really talented lawyers are who don't want to leave the legal profession because they're so good and try to get them into consulting firms. Finally, I mentioned I'll end up with two points, but here's the final one, is that I read legal opinions all the time. And I think the most influential legal opinion I've read maybe in the last few years is one written in the Yale Law Review, where this very brilliant young lady. And what she argued with, and I agree with her, is that for a long time, mergers were based on the fact that a merger would be approved by the US government if the cost of the goods sold to the consumer was not going to go up. As long as prices were going to go down, the Justice Department said, yeah, we approve it. What this lady argued is that in a digital world, for example, where Amazon and Facebook dominate, where things are generally free or very cheap, we should no longer be looking at the cost of providing a service to consumer, but whether or not, even if prices go down, the fact that one company dominates stifles competition. Now, that's a brilliant paper. There's no doubt that somewhere in the near future, some judge is going to use that as some kind of ruling logic. That's going to be appealed. It'll go to a federal appeals court. That'll be appealed again. It'll go to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court will rule in that favor. And that'll become the way M&A will be determined in the Western world. Well, Eastern world as well, I'm sure. Or every world. Southern, Northern, you pick it, right? Southeastern. My point is that if you are paying attention to these things and you really read the right law opinions, 
you can become a much smarter management consultant and business person. But every time someone says lawyers are not good, or even when they say PhDs are not good, well, I think about this. Well, the people that are going into consulting from those disciplines, the ones who are probably not doing as well in their disciplines. So you can't cast an entire judgment on an entire discipline when you're really only interacting with the ones who weren't succeeding in their discipline in the first place. Again, a generalization. But I think we can't argue that judges understand business and they're amazing at the way they analyze the issues, although they use a different technique, not built on frameworks. So if you're a lawyer and a BA student, do not worry about what people tell you about what should be your understanding of business and what should be your strengths and weaknesses. You are generally being compared to the interactions consultants have had with other lawyers and BA students who are usually not the best in their field. Don't listen to people. Don't become disheartened. Don't, when people tell you lawyers are not focused on the big picture, that's, please don't listen to that. Precedent, history, everything shows us that lawyers and judges rule on the most complex issues. And there's no reason why you cannot understand the most complex issues in business and actually bring a different way. And, a, and I would say a useful way of both analyzing the issue and presenting it to your colleagues. So I look forward to more lawyers becoming management consultants and making the field more diverse. As always, if you have any comments or questions, please feel free to write to me. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on marketingsavestheworld.com or firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.